please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Acts chapter 6. And just to jump in, let me catch you up to speed if you have not been here the last few Sundays, and even if you have been. The early church has been born, Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, and overnight you have 5,000, uh, you have 3,000, and then you have 5,000 and beyond converted in a very short period of time. So we're dealing with a very large early church. And Satan is not taking a vacation when the early church begins. Satan is at work trying to undermine and trying to harm and trying to destroy the early church in any way he can. And if you've noticed, in these chapters, chapters especially 4 through 7, we will see, you have an attack from outside the church, an attack from inside the church. Then you have an attack from outside the church, then you have another attack from inside the church, and then you have a third attack from outside the church. What are those attacks? Well, if you remember, first it was the Sanhedrin. Remember a few weeks ago, the Sanhedrin brought Peter and John before them, and they threatened them. They said, do not speak in the name of Jesus, or we will have uh, bad things will happen to you. That's what will happen. And so, there's an external threat, but they go on preaching anyway. And then the next scene, Acts 5, you have Ananias and Sapphira, two members of the church who lie in hypocrisy and want to look more spiritual than they are, and that undermines the integrity of the church, and God brings immediate judgment. They're both, if you remember, struck down, and they die uh, by the Lord in, in uh, Acts 5. And then you have another threat from outside. This time, the Sanhedrin actually has the apostles whipped, uh, beaten, and they leave the council rejoicing. And then you move back inside in today's passage, which we'll discuss in a moment, a conflict that goes on between two groups. And then again, next few weeks, we will see a conflict from outside, which is when Stephen, one of the men we will see in today's passage, is taken before the Sanhedrin, and he will be killed for his faith in Jesus. And then the church in Jerusalem is sent scattering through the region, and what looks like a horrible evil, you clearly see the providence of God behind because instead of all the people being gathered in one place, what happens now? They are scattered, and what do they do? They start preaching the Word everywhere they go, and suddenly you have churches planted all over the Roman Empire over the next three decades. So God keeps turning what Satan means for evil for good in the early church. And today, we are going to look at a strange way in which Satan seems to be undermining the early church, which is through, and I don't mean to make this sound trite because it's actually not, it's through an administrative problem. Now, that may seem like an administrative problem. How, how could that be used by Satan? Well, we will see that it absolutely can and is uh, used by Satan. So, let me, let, me, let me read today's passage. It's not a long passage. Acts 6, verses 1 through 7, and this is the Word of the Lord. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, 
and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, one uh, writer says this, late one night there was a knock at our door. It was a good friend of ours. His hat was crooked and he had wild excitement in his face. It's twins, he shouted as we ushered him in. We had no idea. Two girls. The doctors hadn't spotted her. The first one was born just fine and then they said there was another one. He could hardly contain his excitement, but when he, but when he uh, calmed down and began to reflect on the situation, he realized a new problem. We've only got one cot, he said. There's only one set of everything. Suddenly, we're going to have to go out and get a whole new set of, a second kit of everything. We, we never bargained for all this. Well, that is quite an interesting situation to be in, no doubt. There's an excitement, but then with the growth that comes unexpectedly, there is also going to be an added difficulty, a wonderful blessing and also a challenge that goes with it, the unexpected twins. Well, in today's passage, we are seeing what a lot of people called growing pains in the early church. The church is growing. And listen, for a church to grow numerically is not a bad thing. That is a good thing. But along with rapid numeric growth, there are going to be growing pains. There are going to be difficulties that are going to arise from a rapidly expanding church. I mean, we're talking 120 people to 3,000 to 5,000 to now, if you count everyone, we could have 20,000 people in this church. This is in a few months unbelievable fast, rapid growth, and that is a blessing, but along with it come difficulties. And so, let's look here. I'm going to be using a three-part outline, and I'm borrowing this outline from Kevin DeYoung. Uh, Here are the three points. Uh, This is what the apostles do to deal with this difficult situation, and it it is wisdom. Number one, they acknowledge the problem. Number two, they delegate responsibility. And number three, they know their priorities. They acknowledge the problem, they delegate responsibility, and they know their priorities. Well, look with, look with me here at, again at verse one. A lot is going on in one brief verse. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, before I try to unpack this verse, let me just give another quick story. Uh, Jonathan Edwards is a well-known pastor, theologian in American history. He's considered by many to be the most brilliant mind America has ever produced. Uh, He wrote some of the most important theological works of the last 300 years, and he was used greatly by the Lord in the Great Awakening. He was not a flawless man, but he was used greatly by the Lord and was brilliant in, in so many ways. Well, you've probably heard of Jonathan Edwards. If you went to high school, you probably read excerpts from Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and so you may have a slightly caricatured picture of what he was like as a person, but uh, he was a tremendous preacher, even though his uh, mannerisms were a little bit reserved and a little bit monotone at times. But uh, he, he uh, had an interesting thing happen. After 23 years of being pastor of his church in Northampton, Massachusetts, he was fired by his own congregation. 
that may not be as well known as some other things about his life. And you may wonder, why would one of the great theologians of American history be fired from his own church? And well, there's, it's a complex question to answer because it's a multifaceted thing. But let me tell you one part that virtually everybody agrees was a contributing factor in his eventually losing favor with his own congregation and being voted out in a 10 to 1 vote. Let me say that again, 10 to 1 against him vote uh, as he was kicked out of his own church. Of course, they couldn't find a pastor to replace him, so he stayed for like a year just preaching <laughs> while they were waiting, which must have been somewhat awkward. Just think about that. But he, one of the things that led to his, his being fired from the church was, was, frankly, an administrative blunder on his part. And so, what happened was, I believe it's called the bad book incident. I believe that's what it's been kind of named by historians. But, but essentially what happened was, uh, some of the teenage boys in the church had gotten their hands, everyone ready for the dramatic music, on a midwife manual. Do I need to continue? Do you know what happened next? So, they, they no doubt found out some terms and some phrases, and there's probably some hand-drawn images to help midwives in the delivery of children, and these teenage boys had gotten their hands on it, and they were sort of passing this thing around and learning some things that maybe they didn't need to know at this point, and they went on to, to um, use that to mock some of the girls their age in the church, and this was not a good thing. And uh, eventually this got back to the pastor, to Jonathan Edwards himself, and he was trying to figure out what to do to solve this problem. And so he, now listen, the man was smart, but he probably lacked a little bit of social awareness. Let's just put it that, you know, some people who are just incredibly brilliant, but there's not that kind of social common sense that you might expect. Someone has said that uh, Jonathan Edwards, while brilliant, would have probably made an awkward dinner partner, which I think is probably true. So Jonathan Edwards, not necessarily thinking socially how this would come across at the either end or beginning of a church service, you know, in front of hundreds of people, they had a relatively large church for the time. Um, I think it may have been around a thousand people, he read a list out loud of, first of all, the boys who had done this, which you could debate whether that was wise, first of all, but it gets worse. He then read the names of the boys and maybe girls who had found out about this and reported it, and he did not distinguish which group was which. So, you get this? So, imagine you got a youth group, some of the boys have gotten into something bad, others have found out and reported it, and there's a guilty and innocent group within the teenagers, and he just reads the list of all their names without discriminating who's who, without saying what. So, it sounds like they all did it from what it sounded like. And so, of course, can you imagine the moms and the dads? <clears throat> Pastor, my daughter had nothing to do with this. And so, there was this kind of, this kind of divisiveness that, that arose in the church, and people got understandably, I mean, I can understand that, they, they were not pleased with what Jonathan Edwards had done. And that, just a few years later, was one of the opening issues that started to lo lose favor, his own favor, in the church and eventually led to him being fired. Now, why do I mention that? Because I don't think that there was anything particularly morally evil about what Edwards did. I think it was simply a lack of social awareness, and it was really a poor administrative decision. It was, it was an unwise decision. It, he wasn't meaning harm. It just wasn't thought through carefully. And can Satan use bad and poor, unwise administrative leadership to bring harm in a church? Yes. And so, this is not something that we often put at the top of the list of things we are looking for in a church, but it is important that, that there be uh, good administration in a church. And let's look at, again, this first verse to see the specifics of what happened here. 
One more time, verse 1. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Okay, so the Hellenists, that refers to Greek-speaking Jewish Christians. Okay, the Hellenists, Greek-speaking Jewish Christians. Okay, I don't want to put you to sleep, but do you remember Hellenization? Remember uh, spreading Greek culture everywhere? Well, a lot of Jewish people had grown up outside of the promised land, and so they were Hellenized. They grew up in Greek culture. Greek was their primary language, and they may have spoken Aramaic, the, the, the language of most Jews at the time. They would have spoken it as a second language, but their primary language would have almost certainly been Greek for most of them. They would have also had some of the Greek cultural uh, ways of living and ways of doing things adopted from Greek culture that was just part of their lifestyle, cultural differences. The Hebrew widows would have been Aramaic-speaking widows. Their, their fundamental prime language would have been Aramaic. They probably would have spoken Greek as a second language. Do you see how this works? They have different primary languages, Greek versus Aramaic, and they have different cultural backgrounds, Greek culture versus direct living in the promised land Jewish culture. Does everybody follow that? Now, can you see how this could already be a potential place for division, sinfully? So, here's something else to think about. Scholars estimate that the amount of Hellenistic widows, the Greek-speaking widows, in the Jerusalem area at this time would have been 10 to 20 percent of the population. So, you're dealing with a minority group. You're dealing with a group that's 10 to 20 percent. Let's just say 15 percent of the church was Hellenistic widows. The other 85 percent were Hebrew widows. And so, do you see how this is already something you need to be watching out for? How can we best make sure that there is not worldly divisiveness? There isn't any kind of worldly favoritism. There isn't kind of uh, any, any sort of worldly um, arrogance between the two groups that might show up. Now, it is possible. I, I, I frankly doubt this. It is possible that favoritism was actually directly and deliberately happening, happening here. It's possible that some said, we frankly don't care as much about the Greek-speaking Jews because they're not as far along as we are. You know, we, we got the real home language. They're not quite all the way where we are. And maybe that was motivating discrimination towards them. But I doubt that. I think it was probably a more simple issue. And many people think this, is an, this was probably a, an administrative blunder on the part of the leadership that led to the Hellenistic widows being in some way neglected in the daily distribution. Now, what does that mean? The daily distribution would be food or some kind of daily needs that they needed. But we, we know, right, that the Bible in both Testaments puts a high premium on care for widows and orphans. One of the reasons that is such a common theme in the Bible is because, especially before any kind of governmental aid, uh, if a woman was married and her husband died, and especially if she was older in, in years and she did not have children who could care for her, she was in an unbelievably vulnerable place economically, and she might not be able to survive literally with the basic necessities, S similar with an orphan. So the New and Old Testament spend a lot of time dealing with orphans and widows, especially within the covenant community. 
that's where James says, listen, if you don't care for the orphans and widows within your covenant community, uh, you have adopted a worldliness and your religion is useless. I mean, don't talk to me about your love for the Lord. If members of your church who are widowed and in need, you are letting starve and you're not taking care of those basic necessities relationally and economically, do not claim to be a follower of Jesus if you let the the members of your own church uh, be in dire need and distress without helping them in some way. So, the church is taking care of this, and there were no doubt many widows. They speculate that, uh, well, it's not just speculation, many widows would have moved to Jerusalem if their husband had died in an attempt to try to find better care in a highly populated area. And we know Jerusalem had issues with its economy in the coming decades as Paul is, you know, Paul's always raising money for who? The Christians in Jerusalem. You can see Romans 15 and other places for that. So, this was an area that had a lot of need in these decades. So, what, what happens here? Well, look at this word complaint in verse 1. A complaint arose. Now, that may seem harm, harmless enough. Um, this word, th- this Greek word, they say that, you know, s- some words in English sound like what the sound is that it represents, like the word like, you know, uh, like, I don't know, bam or something, sounds like the sound that it represents. Well, th- this Greek word sounds like what it represents. It's the word gunguzmas. That is a great word, gunguzmas. And that is the word for grumbling, gunguzmas, grumbling. You're just complaining. And this word, f- it shows up in key places in just a few times in the Greek Old Testament, the beginning and the end of the 40 years in the wilderness. This is that infamous word, there was a grumbling, a complaining among the Israelites, and God was extremely displeased. And you know what it was about? It was about leadership and food then, and it's about leadership and food now. Isn't that interesting? So, back then it was Moses and Aaron are doing a bad job leading us. Let's stone them to death and start over. Let's go back to Egypt because they get, we, had, we ate pots full of meat in Egypt, they say. Slightly, uh, slightly uh, interesting memory there, selective memory on what was happening while they were in Egypt getting whipped and beaten all day. Pots of meat is how they see it. Let's go back. That They're complaining about what? Leadership and food. And here, there's a complaint about leadership and food as well. I think this word is highly negative. In fact, it only shows up a few times in the New Testament. We just looked at one a few months ago in a Philippians, listen to this, same word, do all things without gunguzmas, without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life. This is not a compliment when it says that there was a complaint, a grumbling that arose amongst the people. Let me just say, and I am as guilty of this as anybody, God takes grumbling extremely seriously in the Bible. A continually discontented spirit, a continually discontented attitude about your situation in life, your weekly trials, whatever it may be, a a, a looking at the daily circumstances of our lives and to have a discontented, relentlessly complaining, dissatisfied, angry at heaven and earth attitude is extremely serious in the Bible. The the, the millions that, that did not make it into the promised land were guilty of this sin as one of their chief sins in their time in the wilderness, and this is a bad sign. So, can Satan use an administrative problem 
for his own purposes and advantage, yes. And he's beginning a grumbling attitude placed upon a cultural divide in the church between a minority and a majority group that could lead to serious division and could actually fracture the early church. You, you could have had two separate entities if this was left unchecked. And I love this. Think, think about this. The apostles run toward the controversy. That's good leadership. They run toward the difficulty. They run toward the problem. Now, listen, in life, whether it's leadership or it's your roommate or it's your spouse or it's your kids or it's your friend or it's your coworker, when there is a problem going on, if you're like me, my natural tendency is to want to just sort of ignore and just hope everything works itself out especially if I've caused the problem, I don't want to have to face it and deal with it. But here we see godliness is moving in the direction of the problem. We, we move towards the trouble in order to resolve it, to forgive, to make right, especially if it is at all our fault. And the apostles go right toward this problem, and they begin to help fix what is wrong. Look at verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the Word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. Now, just pause there. That may be a miracle in and of itself. They've got, what, 10,000, 20,000 Christians gathered? I mean, they're probably in the temple again at Solomon's Portico, right? The huge area in the temple. They've got thousands of believers there, husbands and wives and younger people and older people, and they're all there. And what happens? They say, okay, here's our plan to deal with this. We, we, this is not okay. It is not okay that the Greek-speaking widows are being neglected or overlooked in the daily distribution of food or resources. That's not okay. We want to fix this. Our idea is we're going to pick seven men. You guys help us pick seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and wisdom. We'll appoint them to this duty. And the whole place is like, that sounds fantastic. Again, that, that may be a true miracle that just occurred right there. And, and I, just here, in our, our church, we have been so grateful uh, for the way that you guys have handled. I think that there have been times where decisions that maybe we've made haven't been perfectly right, or maybe there's been administrative moments where we've had to kind of walk something back or change something later. And, and I'll admit multiple things I can think of. I won't tell the stories now. No need to do that. Just embarrass myself. But I can think of multiple times where I have done things, even as a pastor here at this church, where I've made administrative uh, blunders here and there that I think were hurtful to some of you, and, and I did not intend that, and then later having to apologize and work through those things, you guys have been so understanding and forgiving and gracious in the way that you guys have responded to some of those moments, and so I just want to say thank you for the way that you've been gracious, forgiving, and understanding as we have not been absolutely perfect at every step in, in some of these administrative issues, and um, so we see here the gathering was gracious, and they are pleased with what has been decided. Now, so they acknowledge the problem, but here, a number, point number two, they delegate responsibility. They delegate responsibility. Now, we can learn a lot from this. Can't there be a temptation for all of us to want to be Superman or Superwoman in whatever situation we're in? We want to be able to do what? We want to be able to solve every problem, 
answer every hard question. We want to be able to fix everything that's broken and work out everything that's not quite right. We want to single-handedly just make everything great so that people just go, man, you've got it all together. You, You know what you're doing. And the apostles, if they would have tried to do that, you know what would have happened? If they said, listen, we're going to take care of all this, all going on with the, with the dozens and dozens of widows, you know what would have happened? The preaching of the Word would have all but ceased. Their times of prayer would have been cut down to a small amount, and the leadership of the church would have failed, and the entire church would have been, again, set off course. So, the apostles are not arrogant. They're not going to do it all. They're not going to save everybody. They go, okay, we cannot keep doing what God called us to do, which is preach and pray, which I'll just tell you, I, preaching really does take time. I mean, I, maybe it may not always seem that way. It really does. It, to, to prepare for sermons or Sunday school or teaching of any kind, it takes hours and hours of preparation where you're working through the text and you're working through commentaries and you're listening to other sermons and you're just collecting information and trying to sort through it to, to make it some kind of preachable message. They know it's going to take some time invested here in prayer and in preaching, and so we can't do it all. And so, they they appoint these seven men of good reputation in order to to take care of things. Look at verse 3. They say to the whole crowd, therefore, brothers, that's everybody, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Now, this verse, you need more than this verse to make this point, but this is one of the reasons why we, we wanted in the last year to change our church government to involve all our members in some of these major decisions that are made as a church. Annual budget and membership and things of that nature. Here they include everyone. They say, you guys, uh, there's too many people here for the apostles to know all 10,000, so you guys go and select the seven men with the best reputation, full of the Spirit and wisdom, and we will, uh, we will interview them, no doubt, talk to them, work through that, and then we will appoint them to this duty. And it says they're full of the Spirit and wisdom. Wisdom here meaning how to practically take Scripture, apply it to everyday life, and make the best decision given what you know of the situation that you are in. Being able to foresee possible stumbling blocks further down the road. If we make decision A, this could cause problem X down the road, so let's make decision B to avoid this later. You know, there's all kinds of things about practical wisdom, taking Scripture, these universal truths, and applying them in complicated and complex, interesting and sometimes complex situations where they are applied graciously and wisely in the most biblical way possible. That's why Stephen says to pray for wisdom because we need that from God in order to do what He has called us to do, whoever we are. And here they are, verse 5, what they said pleased the whole gathering. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on on them. Now, I don't want to overstate this. It never quite calls these men deacons in the text, uh, formally, 
but there is something that looks like the future category of deacon being developed right here in this passage. I don't want to press this too much, but you do see here that the apostles say, listen, we can't take care of all the physical needs meeting that has to happen, so we are going to take care of ministering the Word, and we need someone else to minister tables, that is, to minister the physical needs of the church. And so, what you'll later see develop into the category of deacon is the idea of those in the church of good reputation, who are full of the Spirit and wisdom, who then are uh, put in position to take care of the physical needs of those particularly in the congregation and beyond as well, but those who are put in place by God to take care of the physical needs of those in the congregation. And let me just say here, the Bible's not saying that preaching is like the really important thing to do and taking care of physical needs of widows is like down here. When, you know, when they say it's not right for us to give up preaching to serve tables, they're not saying one is like essential and one doesn't matter. That's not what they're saying. What they're saying is they are called to the preaching prayer ministry. If they give that up, there's no one to do it. They have to do that. But caring for these widows is not less important. It is of utmost important. They're not going to let widows starve while they're preaching. So, these are both essential things. So, I just want to say that uh, the Lord has gifted all of us in diverse ways. Right before the COVID hit in March of this past year, uh, we talked, we were in 1 Corinthians 12 about the body of Christ and the many different gifts. You know, the eye cannot say to the ear, I have no need of you, and the hand can't say to the foot, I have no need of you. The body has many different parts, but they all work together in harmony to help the body work as it is meant to work. And we all are in the ministry. Uh, I, I think this is really important, Ephesians 4. Does anyone remember our first shirt as a church? Remember the black long sleeve shirt? Does anyone remember this from our first retreat? A few of you still have it. It's probably in tatters by now from a few years ago. But on the back of the shirt, it's from Ephesians. It says that the pastors are there to equip, remember the word equip was big on the shirt, equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. God has given the church pastors and teachers and evangelists and apostles, etc. Pastors and teachers, why? Why has He given those to the church? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, the building up of the body of Christ. Everyone in this room who's a believer in Jesus, if you're a member of this church, you're a believer in Jesus, you are in the ministry, right? You are. And so, you have all kinds of different ministries that the Lord calls you to on a weekly basis. This may be anything from doing well in school which is part of God's calling on your life. It may be working hard at your workplace when sometimes you don't feel like it. And the Lord has called you to work heartily as unto the Lord, not for men, knowing that it is from the Lord that you will receive uh, a reward. Uh, it may be in the way that you love your spouse or your children if you have them, if you have older children or younger children. These are all ministries that are, that are essential parts of living the Christian life. And as everyone uh, does what we are called to do in diverse ways, we together are seeing Christ build up His body, the, building up the body of Christ. Here, these seven are called to be uh, the early servants of the church. Now, point number three, so number one, the, the apostles acknowledged the problem. Number two, they delegated responsibility. And number three, they knew their priorities. Let me just touch on this a little bit more here. Verse 2, it says, it is not right that we should give up preaching the Word to serve tables. Verse 4, 
but we ourselves will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Okay, hold your spot here and turn with me to Exodus chapter 18 in the second book of your Old Testament, Exodus chapter 18. It was about a year ago, I believe, that we were here, something around there. And if you remember, the Israelites have left Egypt, passed through the Red Sea. They've been eating the manna in the wilderness. They're heading toward Mount Sinai. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, arrives, and Moses spends time talking to his father-in-law who appears to have converted and trusted in Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the triune God of the Bible. And here's this interesting thing that we talked about maybe a year ago, and I'm going to read an extended passage here where you see a similar situation where Moses must delegate authority to others in the people of God. This is Exodus 18, verse 13, all the way to the end of the chapter, Exodus 18, verse 13. The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? Now, pause there. Do you see? This is not wise, Moses. You're trying to do it all by yourself. One man trying to deal with millions of people and who knows how many thousands of disputes. He was the one judge dealing with every court case out of two million people. Wow. Okay, verse 15. And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God, when they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and His laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone." Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, now listen, look for able men from all the people. Does this sound familiar? Men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure, and all the people also will go uh, to their place in peace So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and they judged the people at all times. In any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country." Okay, turn with me back to Acts, but as you're turning there, I want to comment there briefly. Moses was still to be the one bringing God's Word to bear on his people. He was still called to do that. But a lot of the administrative issues were what? They were handed off to others who could deal with them for him, so he had energy and time to deal with the matters that he must deal with that really only Moses at that time could deal with properly. 
So we see here the apostles have done just that, and now they want to devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Now, I will say, we, we as a church, we put a high premium on teaching the Word, preaching the Word. Uh, we, we want to devote a lot of time to that. Hopefully, when, when we are able to gather in smaller groups and things in, in, in a more regular number, we hope to bring Sunday school back. We hope to bring other gatherings back where there could be more teaching and, and more explanation of Scripture. Why? I mean, I don't know about you. We, we preach, uh, maybe I should just say I preach. We preach long sermons around here, and you say, yeah, they, amen to that. They're, they're long. Uh, why? I mean, why, why do we spend 40 to sometimes 50 plus minutes in the service just hearing someone read from a 2,000-year-old book and then talk about it a little bit, and some sermons are not as good, and some are whatever, and you know, wh- why? Well, the answer is, and I really believe this, God's Word does the work of the ministry in our hearts. And even when we do not realize what it is doing, when the Word is read and preached and taught, it enters our mind, it enters our conscience, it goes down into our heart, it shapes our affections, it informs what bothers us in our conscience, it informs our thinking and our theology about God, it helps us to interpret our daily circumstances through a biblical lens rather than a worldly lens. We interpret it through what God has said rather than what our imagination is telling us. And I will just tell you that God's Word is that important. We believe that God's Word being exposed to it over a period of time, over weeks and weeks and months and years, is essential to us as a church growing in our understanding of God, ourselves, and how we can love others and grow in our ability to glorify and honor God with our lives. We put a high premium on that. We put a high premium on it because we believe it is that significant for what we are called to do. Okay, now look at the conclusion, verse 7. Despite these threats to the church, verse 7 says, and the Word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I'm going to read that one more time. And the Word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The power of transformation and salvation is not in a program, even though we talked about how administration matters. The power is not in a program. The power is not in some clever idea I might have or you might have. The power of transformation comes from the truth of God's Word. Sanctify them, you know this verse, sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth, John 17, 17. We believe that here it doesn't say the apostles continue to increase. No, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied and a great many priests became obedient to the word. Now, I love that, the priests. You know, most priests were Sadducees. Well, let's just think about the last few chapters. Who has really hated the apostles? The Sadducee leaders, right? The elites of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. But the Sadducees were especially in, in power in the Sanhedrin. And here, many of the priests, who many of them would have been Sadducees, are converting in great numbers. And they must realize, you know, how to… Think about this. You're, you're, you've been an Old Testament priest perhaps your whole life. And you're involved, some more than others, in animal sacrifice and blood. And you're hearing 
that the Lamb of God has come and taken away the sin of the world, that Jesus was the once-for-all sacrifice for sin, and suddenly you're looking away from the blood animal sacrifice, looking to the empty cross and the empty tomb, and you say, wow, all that my life has been about was pointing to this Jesus of Nazareth. I'm turning now from this old covenant. I'm trusting in the Savior of the new covenant, and I am going to be forgiven, and I'm, I'm going to stop with this animal sacrificial system because now Jesus, the fulfillment, has come and made a way for me to be made right with God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for the parts of Your Word that we so often will quote or memorize that are very familiar to us. But Lord, I, I want to thank You for passages like today's passage that probably are not necessarily in our top favorite texts in Scripture, but it are so helpful and so informative and so good for us in giving us wisdom as a church to know how we should operate in a way that would best honor You. God, thank You for those in this church who have served in our, in our nursery for months and years in the past. Thank You for those who have hosted small groups in their homes. And Lord, thank You for those in the setup and the teardown crew who have given hours and hours of their time to help this service happen each week. Thank you for those who've been helping with the live stream and with slides and with camera work and other things like that, who don't have to be doing these things but have given up their own free time to help. Lord, thank you for the way that so many in this room have met for coffee with others, have helped keep others accountable with sin. Thank you for those who've helped with Bible studies and discussion groups and family groups. Thank you for those who've served in, in almost invisible and less seen ways that I perhaps don't even know about. Lord, thank you for the countless ways that you have brought this body together and shown us and, and taught us to love each other, and I pray that you would continue to help us as a church to grow in our knowledge and understanding of you and in our love for each other as a body of Christ, and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.